Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. We are broadcasting, of course, out here in Scent City, Las Vegas. On today's episode is somebody who I've known for a lot of years. We had heard each other's names quite a bit, have crossed paths, sometimes in front of each other or behind each other, just kind of dependent on the timeline. Anyway, without any further ado, Tony Gravely, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cameron. It is it is pretty wild of, um, how how much our paths have interwined, and we've actually it's it's funny how we're now we're we're uh, doing it via a podcast of catching up on so many people that we've known together and worked together side by side, just never in the same room at the same time. It's wild. It, it really is. We were talking before we went on air here, and it was like I said, it was like a memory lane trip. Um, it, we just did, you know, so I'll let you kind of tell the story and then we can kind of fill in the gaps that overlap. But it, it overview, as you start your story here, we were both military, very close together at the same time. We were both in the contracting world. And of course, now we've had our own businesses. So I'll let you kind of start off with your background, you know, starting off with your Marine Corps and then take us to today. Yeah, so <laughs> totally feel 100% blessed of the, of the the career path that I've had and it's been actually ex- extremely exciting. So I went in the Marine Corps and I, my whole purpose and soul driving passion and going in the Marine Corps was to go canine. So little did I know that you could not be contracted as canine. So go to MP school and push hard as I can to, to do extremely well in school. So I get an opportunity to be selected for canine which I lucked out because I am not the smartest person, but I managed to do pretty decent in MP school, stayed extremely motivated. It was a good PT or back then. Mm-hmm. I was a, I was a, a 300 PFT or type person, pretty yeah. good, pretty good marksmanship wise. So I got selected for canine, went through patrol dog school and lucked out and got to go to the original bomb dog school. So green student, six, six weeks of canine experience in my life. And I get to go to the bomb dog school where basically I get to train, you know, it's green dog, green student. It's supposed to be a 13 week course. And around day 179, I graduate. So I was, I was actually the last Marine to graduate the original bomb dog school. Uh, Still had legends down there from that was Marine Corps, like Kevin Beck was there and Rich Castagna was there and was Mel- uh, uh, Thornton there, I believe. Oh, Jimmy T. Yeah. So, so fast forward, I go to go to the Marine Corps. I I spent a couple of years and then in the fleet, and then I get to go to Okinawa, and Rich Castagna was my kennel master, and Rich Castagna just got done doing the pilot program for the fleet Marine dogs, which was my uh, booby traps and tripwire dogs well, on bomb dogs. So the Marine Corps at the time still was very much jungle warfare mindset at that time. So being in Okinawa, I got to do some really cool stuff with my dog. Nice little bomb dog. I had, I, I wish I could clone that dog. <laughs> the, thing, the things that he taught me and the things that I, that I learned from him was, was I'm very, 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 very thankful for that dog. Lucas was his name. Mm. Anyhow, Castagna hooked me up 
and helped me with through the Marine Corps monitor to get a chance to go back to Lackland as an instructor, which was amazing. So I go back to Lackland, training, went to the DTS side, mm-hmm. having, you know, living, living my dreams, training dogs all day. Where else can, you know, be 20 some years old and have access to thousands of dogs, right? Oh, yeah. So at that point, I was sitting one day by our building after being bit probably for about the hundredth time of teaching out, thinking there has to be, you know, there has to be a much better way. So started thinking about how, how we could do a little bit more positive type training, right? Mm-hmm. So we can actually teach a dog something versus just have them stop doing something for a moment in time. Yeah. We re- at the time, we really weren't teaching out. No. We were teaching them to stop doing something for a minute. Yes. Yeah. So I remember uh, using a vice worse and a Kong. Dog liked the vice worse so much more than the Kong. And I actually convinced them that, you know, top, basically shaped an out off, yeah. of the, off of the Kong. And everybody's laughing at me. And, oh, you, can, you must be, you, you must not really be, you must be in the Navy. You're not in the Marine Corps, you know. What, <laughs> what do you mean you don't want a machine gun or helicopter dog all day long? Mm-hmm. Like, no, I'm tired of getting bit, dude. That's the yeah. problem. These little, little 60 pound Malawas mess you up pretty quick, right? So I had, you know, got to go on a couple of buy trips was great. Uh, bottle, you know, got to go to Germany and you'll get a kick out of this being air force. So the Marine Corps, we didn't even have computers back then. So, <laughs> so I go on this buy trip to Germany and uh, Ted Kapinski was a civilian. That was the liaison for the, for the DOD at the time. Wow. And he, I kept saying, hey, Ted, are we ever going to get, we're going to get, you know, how long is this bike trip going to be? You know, we're, we're well past our normal extension. And he'd tell me every day when I come back to check my email. Well, I didn't know what email was. I, was, <laughs> I didn't know what it was, right? So I would go to, we were staying in Billiton on, on, I think it was Ramstein. Staying oh, in Billiton and Ramstein. So every day I come back to the Billiton and I go up to the counter and I ask the lady, I need to, I need to check my mail. Uh, there's no mail for you i was like the unit didn't send nothing no so the next day i'd say something to ted kapinski and he says dude i told you to check your email so i thought email meant for econo lodge that we're staying at (laughs) i kept going up to the counter right and eventually kapinski says to me one day he says i don't think you know what email is is it i said no i don't actually i don't know what email is you mean it's i kept asking the lady at the counter if i had any mail right from the unit so go back to Lackland, bought a bunch of nice dogs, bought some not so good dogs, less sure. than one, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, we 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 uh definitely was experienced. We, we were in a kennel space from a place called the farm kennel. And I know of at least one dog I bought there because his tail got bit off by another dog in the kennel next to it. So uh-huh. we had couldn't take it back to the vendor. Uh anyhow, so eventually what happens is the Marine detachment's like, hey, this don't make sense. We got our most senior Marine here that's in a non-NCO billet. You need to be on the teaching side. Okay. So end up teaching at patrol dog school and then taught at DDA detector dog school. And then finally finished teaching at soups course. Well, as my enlistment was coming up, the monitor for the Marine Corps is like, look, you know, you, you you're maxed out. You, you've been a sergeant for a long time now. And you're going to either have to make a lap move or you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have, you, you got about six months left in the Marine Corps canine. Mm. So they offered me, I think, CID, Intel, and um, 
EOD. And I was like, yeah, no, no, I, I, I want to stay with K9. So a good friend of mine, Mike Clemenson, was running his own company at the time. So that was a nice transition. I just went to work, went to work for Mike, training dogs and selling dogs back to DOD. So I got to go back to Lackland about <laughs> once a week, right? Yep. And uh, we were joking about this earlier about imagine today if you could go to Holland and ship a dog back for fifty bucks. Oh my gosh! Every every two weeks we were bringing a pallet of, pallet of ten dogs back, five hundred dollars. I remember paying cash at the counter. I think it was KLM. Anyhow. So worked with Mike Clemenson for about a year, had an opportunity. At that time, I it was really, really big in the Schutzen. Mm-hmm. Really big. It was, it was Lone Star Schutzen Club, some you know, some great trainers down there. Mm-hmm. Tom Yonner, uh, Ann Pugineau, all the you know, Don yeah. Lee, yep. uh, Danny Grayson. So had this opportunity to go to Germany to be a training director of a Schutzen Club. I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to the motherland of dog training, right? Yep. So off to Germany I go. Great experience. I took a little Malinois with me. Actually, it wasn't a very little Malinois. I took a pedigreed Malinois with me. Mm-hmm. So here I am, an American, contracted to be a training director of a Schutzen Club, an SV club <laughs> with a Malinois. I was there about six months, and the president of the club says, you know, we got a problem. I said, oh, what's the problem? He's like, if you haven't noticed, everybody here – is an older generation of German and uh, your German skills are not very good. So I end up taking literally from Kaiserslautern University to take German 101. So take a bunch of German classes, getting stronger, everything's going great, loving everything, tiling a lot of dogs, having a lot of success, found some phenomenal trainers, Hagen Mueller, um, some super Thomas Ziegler. Got to train with like Bernard Flinks. The first time I saw Bart Malone was at the Kaiserslautern Universe, uh, Kaiserslautern Stadium. He was doing dances with Malawas back then, the big demo. And uh, I remember at the end of the demo, Wolfgang, the president of my club, says, "Did you understand everything?" And I says, "Yeah, I, I think it was all in English." But, <laughs> but Bart, I was so into the into his demonstration that I didn't even realize Bart spoke. Perfect Hochdeutsch, perfect German. So I understood every single thing that happened. Great time, great, time. great learning. Great learning. Learned a lot about learned a lot about drive, temperament, and character of dogs. That's for sure. Um, problem was, is I was like starving. I wasn't making any money. I was, I was doing BH and Schutz and ones for breeders, mm-hmm. just just to make enough money. To you know, eventually I, I couldn't live off of beer and worst only. So. <laughs> Although I, I did pretty good on it for at least four years. So I ran into an old student of mine and he says, Hey, you ought to try this contracting world. There's a bunch of contracts in the Middle East. And this is this is pre-9-11. So I go from there. Within two weeks of meeting him and talking to him, I was in Kuwait. So worked in Kuwait for quite quite a few years. Crazy thing was. Uh, this was pre 9-11. So we were already supposed to expand the contract at the time. Add, I think we were adding four four more dogs at the time and four more handlers. Well, then about that time, 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows that's been involved in the dog world. Post 9-11, the dog world flipped upside down. Yep. 
we couldn't, I, you know, I was trying to, trying to control where we were buying our new dogs from. I was trying, of course, obviously I wanted to go back to Mike Clemenson because that was my old buddy, mm-hmm. but Mike was so backlogged because his business was going crazy at the time. So sitting in this big meeting, uh, our, the, the director of security at the time says, well, he looked at me and says, you still have contacts in Holland. I said, well, of course, so, you know, still have contacts in Germany, Holland, and he's like, all right. We're just going to, Tony's just going to train their dogs. Well, lo and behold, I'm like, this guy's, you know, this guy's, you know, pretty, pretty ballsy here just to make statements like Tony's just going to train their dogs and stuff. He doesn't even know me. Yeah. So at the end of the meeting, he says, you don't remember me, do you? I said, no, I'm really sorry, sir. I don't. He says, I was a group commander that the 341st fell under. And I remember you because you're instructor of the year. Oh, wow. (laughs) He said, I remember signing off on this big certificate for you because you're instructor of the year. And it was kind of odd that a Marine yeah. was Air Force instructor of the year type of thing. <laughs> so he remembered me and I didn't remember him. So anyhow, I trained some dogs there. And then obviously, you know, the whole world changed, the dog world changed. So it was not too long after that, that ended up in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure because we talked about this earlier, probably the the most significant thing in reference to 9-11 was that bomb dog handlers previously were always kind of like the fire department. Yes. No one wanted to pay for them until their house was on fire. Mm-hmm. Then everybody mm-hmm. was the fire department. Well, post 9-11, guess what? Now mm-hmm. we were actually, we really had a mission. Mm-hmm. So Iraq and Afghanistan really, really to me was probably the most significant learning time frame because you know i i never came back to the states from 96 mm-hmm. but literally from 96 till 2012 i stayed overseas the yeah. first four years was in germany and then then the remainder was all in the middle east and talking about you know bomb dogs all of a sudden you know we really learned mm-hmm. how to how, how to deploy what worked what didn't work Mm-hmm. And we got very, very good at, you know, what, how to put a dog together for deployment or operational purposes made a big difference. And it wasn't just ECP work. It was everything. Yes. Um, got pretty lucky that I was in the, you know, I stayed of working overseas in the contract world. I only changed shirts three times. Yeah. That and the bulk rare. The bulk of the time was with a company called the EODT. Mm-hmm. So it was a great experience. Um, eventually, you know, we the we finally didn't the protest and after the the bids after the big contracts, we finally lost it and I got suckered in to uh, some of the other companies. So mm-hmm. I finally made a shirt change, and then so at the end I was managing. I was country manager, and I had Iraq, and then, so at the end, I just the contract world just kind of ate me up and an old friend of mine, Terry Fitcher, which I knew originally from DTS, but I also knew from the mind dog world. He was, had been working for Auburn for quite some time. Sends me a Skype message. Hey, I think I got a job that you might be interested. So lo and behold, I went from Baghdad green zone to Anniston, Alabama. And that was a big shock change for me. Loved it. I loved working for Auburn. I loved the vaporwick program. Um, it was, I'll be really honest. Initially, I kind of thought it was like smoke and mirrors, to be honest. Sure. Until you trained a couple dogs and then you saw what they can do, mm-hmm. especially like 
we used um we used the five point station at marta five point station atlanta scenario mm -hmm. and i'm telling you i've seen some pretty amazing things dogs following a trail or following the wake yeah so a lot of fun really good experience but probably one of the most significant things that happened to me when I was in Alabama was Don Blair. Oh, I'm sure you wow. know him. oh yeah. Don Blair, been he says, uh, hey, in, at the end of the month, you're going to go with me to Birmingham and you're going to judge a foo-foo dog trial for detecting. <laughs> Literally, that's what Don said, a foo-foo yeah, dog trial. Yeah. Right? So I'm like, all right, this sounds pretty cool. This is pretty fun, right? Yeah. So – we, it was in Birmingham, and uh, I, if I remember right, it was a Nosework 3 and a Nosework 1 trial. Okay. And uh, not that we might not have consumed some adult <laughs> beverages on Friday night until probably the wee hours of the morning um, for quite some time. So sorry about that. No worries. Uh, so anyhow, long story short – I'm I'm pretty sure the first the first the trial I judged the first Saturday was a nosework one, mm -hmm. and I think that that probably was as as rough as I was feeling from consuming may have consumed some adult beverages the night before. <laughs> as rough as I was feeling, I was totally blown away, and I still remember the dog. It was a dash hound. Okay, walk, yeah. walk on its back legs from the rear of the vehicle all the way to the front license plate in odor. And I said, Oh my God, this is it. This, mm -hmm. this is, I'm, I'm hooked on this. Yep. From that day forth, it's been, I have been really, really just completely passionate. I love it. It doesn't matter if it's like a super high drive Malinois or mm -hmm. a well-bred sporting field trial lab, and it can get its ass whooped by a little Chihuahua, you know, I just oh, yeah. I love it. And so going forth, I've been, you know, I got involved with NACSW. Mm -hmm. I end up going through the CNWI program. I, you know, mm -hmm. I still judge for them. So I end up in uh, around 2013, I ended up moving to Virginia. I went to work for a company out there. We were doing the IDD program, the off-leash labs, yep. which, which phenomenal, phenomenal deployment of a, mm -hmm. of a bomb dog. The world, the world has never seen anything so great as to watch a lab doing a boxing off a road and running at you know full speed and hitting odor. It's amazing. Anyhow, so I got was working for a company in Virginia, and uh, contracts started drying up. So I eventually just went to work for myself. And uh, as I, I was joking with you earlier, like I, I think it was 2014 or 2015, I. I was looking through the books with my oldest son that worked for me at the time. And we're at like dog 128 and we're like eight months into the year. And I'm like, wait a second, we haven't made any money. What's going on? <laughs> like, like, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pay my light bill this month. Right? Yeah. So I just got, got a little bit more involved in the sport world as far as the, you know, and then AKC added scent work, mm -hmm. which um, I'm a judge for them. I'm an expert judge for them. And, you know, going forward, this is this has been amazing, actually. And the things that I've learned, you know, it's funny. Initially, in the in the companion dog world, I was taking everything that we had from the professional world and putting it in the companion dog world. Yeah. Now I'm taking a lot of stuff from the the companion dog world and putting mm -hmm. it into the 
the police world or the, the professional detection world. Yeah. So I also still work for uh, some friends of mine started a company, a canine company, uh, global canine protection group. So I still work full time for them. I'm a canine director for them. So I have, we're mainly doing uh, under the, under the TSA program, the cargo screening. Yep. So I have uh, Detroit, Chicago, Rockford, Cleveland, Cincinnati. I have kind of the central region, about 90 teams working. So I still, I'm still heavily involved in the, in the, you know, the professional side of the world and then do a lot, a lot of nose work stuff. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's kind of how I, I, I saw you again, you propped up, you know, in the different feeds I have. Uh, on the nose work side of things. And of course, like I said, I had seen your name in the past and it was funny. You mentioned one of those stories uh, being over in Germany. So when I was there, I was there from 96 to it was like the tail end of 96 to, you know, late, actually late 2000. Anyway, my, I got lucky and got an invite to go through the German police dog handler school, uh, especially during my last few months of my time in the military. So, um, my base commander, or not my base commander, but my uh, squadron commander at the time was uh, a lady named Mary Kay Hertog. And at that time she was colonel. So she happened to have seen me training dogs on a field near her office, uh, Get you know, pulls up one day when I'm training. So I see the, the car pull up with the colonel plate in the front of it. So I salute <laughs> the vehicle. She comes out, starts talking. She's a big dog lover. She ends up being later on, gets becomes a one star, ends up being the head of 341st later on. Anyway, she took a liking to what I was doing with the dogs, uh, you know, bypassing some details. But she ended up she was the one who allowed me to go to the German police dog handler school. So uh, it was super cool because a friend of mine was a German police dog handler, Pulitzer handler. He spoke perfect English. And so he was my instructor over there. Um, it was in that same time frame, I was also making sure that like you, when I was, I was, I was in Schutzen, I was traveling all over the different countries, learning French ring NVBK in Belgium, KNPV in Holland. Well, I end up on this farm field in one place and the ones teaching is Bart Ballon and Helmet Rising. Cool. So Bart and Helmet were teaching a, a class. I shared this story actually on another podcast I did with Michael Ellis. And it was funny because it was the beginning of Bart kind of being out there more as an e-caller guy. Uh, obviously, Helmet Riser was um, become it was known really well, both positive and negative, because he had won the Bundesliga a couple times with being an e-caller guy, and that was super yeah. controversial. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it was just funny that have his title removed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it, it's funny to hear you being over there around those same times, running into those same people. And then, which is, we didn't even talk about before we went on the air. So it just, it's crazy how many ways we've crossed paths or been so close to so many of the same things and how all these different experiences have made an effect on us as dog guys and, and trainers and instructors. And, um, you know, it, it was funny, you know, through, for me, how I got introduced to the sport was during a gosh, it had to be probably for me, it was in 2013 or 14. Anyway, there was somebody who I was friends. I was actually starting to date her. Uh, she was doing nose work and I kind of watched it and, and, you know, probably like you, 
there was, I was super amazed by so many things I saw on the nose work side of things. Like, like you said, all the types of dogs that were doing it with a 10th of the motivation of the dogs that we were used to. And then of course there was the things that made me scratch my head. Like, why are they doing it this way? And <laughs> it wasn't until, you know, later on when I started learning the, why the program NSW or sorry, say NSW NACSW was set up. I then had a better understanding as to, okay, this is why they do it that way, or this is why this exists. And, you know, it, it was, it's so interesting, like you brought up the convergence of both professional world to the sport world and how it, it was common for us in Schutzen, right? As it, being military guys, being in law enforcement, you, there was always the sport community that bled into our world a little bit because of the bite work stuff. Like you yep. said, Bernard Flinks, some of these other trainers, you know, if you were a professional, if you were the police dog world or military dog world, you would take some of the things that you saw, thanks to Doc Hilliard and the videos that he would produce back then, the CTS videos, yeah. we, would, we would go out there and, and you, we would apply some of that sports stuff to the bite work obedience world. Well, now we have sports of detection and these detection dog sports are bleeding into the professional side of things, just like you said. So I guess what I'll, you know, as I bring into the next question here is first, let me go with some of that contracting military time. Is there a, a story you could share on a, let's say a real deployment type uh, search where something in training really paid off on a deployment of a dog team, either that you trained or that you got to go work when you were overseas you're like, yes, I'm really glad we did this because of whatever happened on this uh, deployment. Oh, I, I could, man, I could think of like a hundred scenarios, but yeah. so let's, let's think about a bleed over from the sport world into the, into the, the professional world. Right. Mm -hmm. So the send away or the Varaus. Yeah. Yep. So I remember uh, working entry control point. And there was a lot of times that, you know, we had a pretty good idea that this vehicle was going to be hot. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, this is absolutely stupid. Why am I going to walk up yeah. with, with a six foot leash and just wait for that cell phone to ring and it's going to detonate? Mm -hmm. So I, I reflected back to teaching the Sendaway, the teaching, teaching the Varouse. And so we just, you know, successive approximation, just shaping a little bit of behavior. We started literally, we end up teaching a dog from a send away from behind a barrier, you know, modified it from being on the, on the sport field to being behind a barrier. Yeah. And we just started, we shaped a pattern so the dog could run the vehicle on its own on a send away. And it, it worked out and it literally, that was a hundred percent bleed over of the Varouse and no different than we did it. You know, we used it for building searches. We used it for everything, but it was a nice bleed over from the sport world of, you know, how to transition something from that we learn from mm -hmm. the ship build to a deployment scenario. And honestly, it, it was a lot safer and it actually, yeah. it worked really, really well. And, it, and of course we had drivey dogs that, you know, that knew sure. the top really well that had, and we just shaped the pattern and it worked really well. So that's, that's definitely one scenario I mm -hmm. can think of. Um, has there been something like a deployment uh, where you guys found something and you were like, man, that whatever training aspect paid off because whether it be the indication or like you said, distance, um, just something oh, unique. Yeah, yeah 100%. It, and I, it was uh, 
I I can think of the vehicle perfectly. Okay. It was liquid, liquid Petten. Okay. Uh, wow. Which was, and the, the crazy thing is that we had taught, basically we taught ring the bell in a sense. Okay. So on send away, dog would go check the vehicle. The vehicle was clear. The dog came back to us. So okay. basically ringing the bell or what I would call ringing the bell, right? No different than rounding a blind. Yeah. Well, the dog actually didn't final because the, the scent picture wasn't hundred percent the same of what it knew, but the dog would not leave the vehicle. Just kept circling, circling, circling. And, you know, you're watching from a distance. And so you can't really, you know, you can't necessarily see the dog's mouth from the distance and so forth, but you could definitely tell the dog was in odor. And lo and behold, yeah, the, the vehicle was hot. It was, it was full of liquid petting and um, canisters, uh, wow. the, canister, the canisters type that are, uh, that they put soda syrup in. Uh-huh. It was supposedly delivering these canisters onto, onto the post. And yeah, it was, it was hot. It was definitely hot. Um, so definitely yeah. paid off hundred percent. And I could, I could think of, you know, countless deployments where we've, we had fines that the, the dog, you know, the bleed over from understanding how to run a pattern, how to, you know, literally we would do uh, off leash searches going down, uh, like going down a little passageway between two, two, uh, two roads that, you know, basically you got a brick, a dirt wall, <laughs> dirt walls on both sides. And, you know, and yep. you, basically we're just doing send aways all the way down. Send the dog to search at one point, stop them, put them in a plot or put them in a down mm-hmm. and redirect them and just keep, you know, leapfrogging our way up. And a lot, of, a lot of finds that way had some, had, um, uh, Oh, what's the shape charges that the, they, they used to use all the time. And they put them in the wall and they turn into a cone when they explode. I'm trying oh, to, Oh yeah. Yeah, the copper ones that would yeah, uh, the shape guard, yeah. yeah, and it would mo- it would basically go through our ar- you know inches of armor steel. Oh yeah, because yeah, yep, it's like an yeah. RPG basically, very similar. Yeah, but it, I'm trying to think of the name of it, and I'm drawing a blank right now. I can't believe it, but yeah. basically, they found some shape charges in walls like that, basically in mud walls. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that was pretty interesting is how to. You know, the, the mounted distractors that we learn. I remember doing my, my first shits in one. I remember doing a, a herd of sheep when my <laughs> dog was in the long down, mm-hmm. went right to the middle of the field. Um, so learning to work through distractors like chickens and yep. sheep and stuff like that. Uh, I remember having a find in, in a dead goat, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was a common thing over there, too, was they would put dead carcasses and fill them with explosives and you know, obviously going down the road out there, that wasn't an uncommon thing to see in that complacency aspect of the soldiers would be like, Oh, it's another, you know, but then it'd be attached to some form of initiator and they would debt that and then take out the convoy or the vehicles. And they learned a lesson really quick over there, which was if you injure one or two soldiers, you're going to tie up eight to nine other soldiers who can't fight because they're dealing with the injured. And that obviously became the, the tactic for IEDs. Hundred percent, and well, it, it basically, as you watch the war evolve, yeah, mm-hmm. like you said, we went from you know one unit to two units to three units, and all it was was just a little bit of basically super guerrilla warfare, just picking away at us and keep adding. But the complexity, what I found really unique was going back and forth between Iraq and Afghanistan. Truthfully, Iraq had 
better quality explosives. Mm -hmm. Afghanistan had lesser quality explosives, but a lot better ingenuity. Yeah. Um, and uh, we could, you know, there's plenty of stories. Uh, oh, I yeah, remember the first, sure. time I saw, first time I saw a blue tarp that was painted silver. I'm like, why do they paint these blue tarps silver? Well, they're collecting the aluminum out of the spray paint is what they're doing. <laughs> because they're, then they're going to, then they're going to use the ammonia nitrate fertilizer that we gave them to mix with the spray paint that we gave them. Yeah. Yeah, they built some, built some great IEDs. The other thing that, the other thing that, that I could think of that, really really like from the sport world that made a lot of sense to me was the calm and clear-headedness of working tracking and for the sport of Schutzen of how to how to make methodical clear-headedness why that all of a sudden paid off for the future of basically like I did I did mine detection dog stuff too and the bleed over from mine detection dog stuff for the sport of Schutzen is the exact same behaviors that I use to create calm, clear-headed, methodical searching on the track, yep. I it just bled over to mine detection, mm -hmm. and it it the same you know the same concepts of working slow, methodical, of how to almost basically do literally you know snail speed footprint the footprint tracking paid off for when I did mine detection work because it, it you had to be precise and you had to be clear you know calm and clear-headed, methodical. So the same the same behaviors pay, paid off. Oh, pretty for sure. And not now you brought that up. I never, I, I think of the correlation of that. No, you bring up, you know, a lot of really important points for detection dog handlers. You know, back when you talked about the liquid PETN, you know, the dog was recognizing it, but it was a different context. So the dog's like, it smells similar, but it's different. And being good at reading your dogs, um, because, you know, when we face things on the professional side, whether it be narcotics, explosives or whatever, there is a obviously an intent by the creator of that item to either conceal it, get it past the dog or a human. There's levels of creativity like you brought up, not only in creating something, but also in how to mask it, hide it, etc. And to be good with you, you know, as a handler of your dog to read those differences between your dogs, just interested in some smell, whatever it is, like over there, goat piss and, you know, all the, you know, just the, yeah. the trash everywhere. And then going, this is working odor. Now that skill is super important. And like you said, there is a lot of lessons learned in that time frame. you know, back, obviously me and you, when we were handlers, Prior to those wars, the common way was to walk backwards, do it, present in an inverted V, working on a six-foot leash. And they quickly <laughs> realized in 03, 04, let's say 05, oh, wait a second. We actually don't want to be within six feet of our dog on most of these searches. Thus came the SSD program, the IDD programs, all of the different things that started coming out there where dogs had to range out from us, be able to be directed having better communication skills between us and our dogs all of the all of that evolution of detection started during the iraq afghan wars and we are still applying a lot of those lessons today i mean many of those cases bomb dog handlers like you said in the military we were the 
okay, in emergency break glass, we'll go out, do our thing. Like you said, like the fire department where the drug dog guys were always out there getting stuff, staying busy, yeah. getting some work. Uh, then all of a sudden 9-11 happens and then bomb dogs bump up to the top of the list for at least four or five years. Of course, now it's even all back out. But, you know, the, the biggest things I look at that time frame, let's say the early 2000s to the you know 10s or so, we really had to evolve that's where detection to me evolution started really happening and it came out of the necessity in lessons learned of war and how to be better and then guys like yourself and others who i know who are now out there teaching and have gone full circle coming back into and in this case the sport community of nose work and scent work sharing this information to the sport handlers of how to read your dog in various types of uh, environments and distractions. And in those environments, you know, in the sport world are still very pristine and clinical for a lot of, you know, levels. It gets more complex, of course, as it goes along. But what's some of the stuff that you definitely can say, hey, these are lessons I learned been, you know, from, let's say, the combat world that I'm now sharing with the typical nose work competitor? So, I, boy, there's, there's a bunch of things. But the one sure. thing that I can definitely say especially now in nose work has evolved you know we've gone from nose work three was like the biggest challenge now you got elite and then now you have summit right so it's the the one thing that i can say that the far as understanding coming from the professional world of let's say putting yourself in the you know working at ecp and in the green zone right Mm -hmm. now to to compared to uh, the the sport world is that the duration of the searches things have completely changed. We went from nose work, you know, nose work one, nose work two, nose work three, to where basically you know dog's going to have a find in a few seconds, right? Yeah. Now things are being stretched out. So really, truly understanding past the the normal expectation the dog's going to find something immediately now to be able to really to understand to un- to interpret how the dog is working odor is it inaccessible is it converging all these different things and i i can tell you thinking back on some not so greatest scenarios in reference to having daisy chained ieds yeah if we could interpret converging odor like i can now mm-hmm. compared to then it definitely is a difference. And, I, and I'm not going to go into some scenarios because it's not the best of times of my life. Sure, but yeah. if we if we would have understood how odor is moving at the time, you know, the old scenario, well, odor falls, odor falls, odor falls. Yeah. Well, no, it doesn't. It's got to rise before it falls. Mm-hmm. And it carries a lot. It gets stuck in thermal layers sure. and in channels and everything like that. So those lessons that we learned on the battlefield, for better lack of words, now I can bleed over into far as when we're getting into elite level, not necessarily in nose work three, but far as elite or even in detective for AKC, mm-hmm. is that the duration of the searches change how the dog works because the dog learns to capitalize on its energy level. Mm-hmm. When you're at when you're at vehicle number three hundred at the ECP and you think your dog's not working, he is still working. It's the same scenario now when you're eight minutes into a search 
in detective or in delete. Now you're eight minutes into the search. Is your dog really working or not working? And how to read the subtle changes of the dog marking odor because he's collecting data. He's yeah. not running. He's not running it all together at one time. He's pulling little fragments here and there. And basically, as I say, he's doing a giant math problem to pull <laughs> enough information to make the sum to find out exactly where source is at. Because he has to triangulate it. It's the same scenario that happens when you're working a long search overseas. That that information, the subtleness, you have to be on your game all the time to pay attention to what's happening. And that, I would probably say, is probably the biggest lessons learned coming from overseas is how to pay attention to the small, small little moments of communication that we never ever thought about before. Probably the most damaging thing that's ever happened to the detection dog world is having a final response mm -hmm. because it's not going to happen. Yeah. You're not they're always going to have a final, especially when the sim pitchers say, or it's inaccessible. Yeah. Or, the dog is, he can't, he can't get, he, he can only pull two of the numbers and he can't find the third number to make the triangulation. He, you're going to yeah. have to do some math. So I would say that coming from the battlefield, the, probably the biggest carryover I would say is understanding the small communication that happens and how that can bleed over into the sport world of understanding converging odors and complexity of what's happening and how odor can get stuck in thermal layers and travel for such a distance that you would never ever realize that it's that far away when you think your dog is actually not working, but he actually is in odor the entirety of the time. He just hasn't got enough data at the time to solve the problem yet. Yeah. And you, you know, hit on some important things there. I'll, I'll go to that final response part of it. Um, and it's always a big debate within the detection dog community, final response, no final response, so on and so forth. And you're right. One of the biggest things that handlers struggle with is let's say they go with the final response, but then for any number of reasons that you mentioned, the dog doesn't give the final, but is clearly communicating that they're in odor or they're at odor. But because the dog didn't do this thing, the handler won't do the next step it should do, which is either some type of type of communication or reinforcement, whatever they choose. Yeah. So the dog then goes, well, nothing's happening. I'm, I'm in odor, no, no reinforcement happening, no communications happening. And then they move on, change, do whatever the, and that's an, that's a, a like I said, a hotly debated aspect for multiple reasons and I definitely agree because what I've gone through myself, I teach, we teach dogs final responses for the communication aspect, but we can't disregard the dog's ability to communicate to us through the changes of behavior. All of these things that we know are consistent to when odors present, regardless of whatever that final position is, you know, we have to be able to read the dog because like you said, could be the environment. The environment may be prohibitive to the dog doing a perfect little sit stare. Um, inaccessible, like you said, uh, the odor being similar, but different, you know, and reading all those things. Um, so I always encourage handlers. Part of the things I incorporated this past year in classes was every day handlers had to write out in detail what their dogs did at odor. Also, if there was a distracting or proofing item in the search, what did the dog do? It, write it in detail by making the students write that over and over every day by watching the videos that we, that was the other thing too. I wasn't ever a big video person. 
until recently, until like the past year or two. Now I use it frequently almost every day in every aspect because especially during learning for new handlers or even experienced handlers, it just gives you that bigger perspective of being even beyond the 12 foot leash or, you know, even a 30, you know, you're getting to see from a point of view of a camera, things that you didn't see when you were working your dog. And that's super helpful. And it's very good for their note taking and record keeping aspect. The other thing that's totally not related to um, the, this part of the conversation about alerts. One of the things I see from the sports side that is a problem type thing is the time you know, being rated how fast you find stuff. And I was going to ask you, do you, because you come from the same background, obviously, as I do, do you see the detriment sometimes that comes from speed? I joke around, I say speed kills, you know, it wins competitions, but the bleed over of issues that I deal with as a trainer or that I see as a judge directly comes from handlers trying to do something (laughs) so fast and then misreading something because they're, they they feel that time pressure. Their little watch on their wrist is beeping every minute. So there's that. So I'll let you kind of talk about that for a second. Oh, so I don't know if you know. So I, on my, I have a Facebook group that I that uh, is I do. There is some of my professional handlers that are that are on the group, but mainly it's it's directed towards the sport world. Mm-hmm. So I've done you know the, all sorts. Every Thursday I give some type of tip. That's mm-hmm. what I try to do every Thursday. Sometimes I miss. All right, I'll be honest. Right? Yeah, but no, I get I, it. So I, I try to do every Thursday. So it's it's funny you talk about videotaping because that was last night's uh, thing. But going back on what you talked about time. Yep. That is probably the most significant difference from the professional world mm-hmm. to the sport world. If you take a and I've done it before, just as a scenario. I take a typical dope dog handler and give him a time limit and he yep. does the stupidest things that he has never yep. done before in his, in his life. The biggest one that I see and I laugh about this people time is, you know, there's so many variables. Do you have the wind to your advantage? Is that, mm-hmm. is the AC on? All, all of a sudden the cooler turned on, you know, the, the refrigerator mm-hmm. turned on. Now it's pulling air. So there's so many different variables in reference to time. So the one mm-hmm. thing that I can always tell, and I tell people this all the time, People, particularly with a, a more methodical or slower dog, they're always like, oh, I'm not doing so good. I'm not doing so good. I'm worried about the time. I promise you, you get the nose work three, and the slow methodical dog will prevail yeah. in the long run. So the mistakes that I see handlers make in reference to time is, one, they almost don't even reward their dog because they're such mm-hmm. an the, – the two seconds that it gives them to give a little piece of food actually mm-hmm. kills them in the long run because the dog's not even done eating and they've pushed the dog off. Yeah. You know, the dog has to have time to process everything that took place. There's also, you know, there's recovery time. There's all sorts of things that can be involved there. But the biggest thing that I see people make mistake is, is that one, they almost don't reward their dog because they're trying to go so fast. Mm-hmm. Two, they become so hasty in trying to be fast that they're not, they don't have any observation skills themselves and they skip whole ports, whole portions of the room. 100%. And that's, Obviously, if the dog never had an opportunity to be in the portion of the room to find a hide, they they just can't do it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I see that speed in the sense of your statement, speed kills. It definitely yep. does. And in return, the hectic, crazy dog that seems to have all this energy in the long run actually is going to be really slow. Oh, yeah. 
and that gets misconstrued a lot too is um you know i know obviously from the time frame that we've been doing dogs on uh, the professional side the initial thought was i want these crazy really highly motivated dogs because they would run through a brick wall to get their toy and now people like us realize no that's not the most desired thing because those are usually the less the least mentally flexible dogs uh it takes them it takes so much management just to work with a dog like that and that hecticness creates a lot more issues in detection uh dogs start just offering behaviors because they're just trying to figure out get the reward like what do i have to do so here's this i know you like a sit so here's a sit Mm -hmm. um or just constantly reading the handler for information of oh when are you going to grab your toy and all the telegraphing aspects and that that's something that i also see happen in the sport world quite a bit is where i i guess i see this more which is the dogs manipulating the handlers a little bit more frequently because they know their dogs so well. These dogs aren't just kennel dogs. These dogs live in the houses. They know how to push the buttons of mom or dad. Uh, they're really good at um, cueing their handlers. You know, we always joke around how, you know, handlers cue their dogs. But I see quite frequently uh, now the sport world really growing is – dogs that will do things to cue their handlers to then so they can see the handler grab a toy or grab, reach for the pouch or do whatever like look I, I i i sniffed and i looked at you and there's that learning curve that those handlers go through because in that communication of everyday life those things mean something then all of a sudden now on a uh search for nose work or scent work it becomes confusing because the handler is like well i know these behaviors mean something to me in our communication style but the dog is doing this to get the reinforcer or get the handler to do something to tell them that they're right. But it's an interesting little cycle that kind of develops sometimes. And I'm sure you've seen it. Oh, I, I actually, I, I make a joke, the companion dog, you know, most, most people that are involved in nose work or scent work, they've had the dog since it's seven, eight weeks old. Right. Yeah. So it's lived in the house. Like literally, I think if mom thinks I want the remote control, the dog will walk over and pick up the remote control. Mm-hmm. Mom doesn't even have to think it, right? Yeah. Or doesn't even have to say it. So when you talk about dogs, the problem, what I, the uh, challenge I see is that handlers miss the communication that initially was given. And because the dog is so compliant and so willing to follow, or well, I guess super stiff. Her mom says, we're not finding Birch today because she's missed it three times. Mm-hmm. What I told her. And now the dog is completely ignoring it because it feels that mom doesn't want to find Birch today yeah. or whatever the case may be, or the opposite. Well, mom says that we still need to be searching in here. So I'm going to stay in this room and eventually <laughs> I'm going to offer something and you're going to get, you're going to get that alert that you're after. The, the, the crazy thing is, you know, going back to circling around back to the professional dog world, Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I have had, especially on the, the more so on the narc side, but I've had my, definitely I've had my fair share of fines on the bomb dog world. I will tell you that of all my years, even I've even had, I had fines prior to Iraq and Afghanistan mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On the dog world, but I will definitely tell you that and all the years of searching with a, either as a handler or as a supervisor managing, I've only ever had two final responses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think one, the the first one, we actually, a craziest scenario, we'd actually trained in the building the week prior. Okay. So it just was so contextually perfect for the dog. 
and we had not trained in the same part of the building, but we had been in that building training the week prior, right? Mm -hmm. So it was like the picture perfect scenario for the dog to have success. And the dog did offer a final response, probably more so because we were so slow at calling it. (laughs) And the dog eventually kind of just got frustrated with us. And then the other one was the same type scenario we had ran. uh, It was a sticky bomb. The sticky bomb scenario on the yep. bottom of our little uh, anti-personnel mine that mm-hmm. they use a washer timer, right? Yeah. So we had ran this drill so many times that I think contextually it was just perfect for the dog to offer a final response. Yeah. Other than that, because there was no, there was no explosive that we had directly trained within that containment. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There was components of the same stuff, but nothing exactly the same. So the scent pitcher was familiar, but mm-hmm. really that was stretching it, to be honest. So that was a, when you talk about final responses, those are the only two final responses of all the years of working bond dogs that I've had. I've had a lot of I've had a lot of calls off changing behavior. I've had a lot of yeah. calls off bracketing that were were successful to, to covering a device. But it, the the final response was never there. And that is what I find that I really, really actually enjoy from the sport dog world is that mm-hmm. most people don't have a formal final response. Sure. They have alert behaviors and they have yep. behaviors that coincide with the dog sourcing or finding the point of source, yep. but they don't have technically what I would consider a condition final response, Yeah, which in return, I think builds a better handler for reading their dog. Oh, without a doubt, because they, like you said, they get really good at learning those nuances that are con- or that are predictive to the odor. Like my dog does this at odor, which the professional side always waits for that TFR. And they're like, well, what's the, my dog didn't do this yet. And, you know, where that, like I said, the, the sport handler really knows those little nuances of behavior. This is what my dog does at odor. And this is what, that's one of the things I take in to share to the professional side is that importance of knowing all those little minute behaviors. And then on the sport world side, I share with them how having a indication at certain for, you know, as part of the training sequence sometimes just helps them get a little bit more committed to odor, but it's not really required. I just use it as one of the training techniques to say, see, he, you know, I don't require him to have it, but to say, here's why we do it. Here's something. And of course, there's some that are really dedicated and they jump into it and say, yeah, I do want this, but I do also understand my dog doesn't have to give this for me to call, which is really good to, to take away. Is like, hey, I may have, I may do in training um, some sit or whatever. The, the, where we get into the weeds sometimes, and my trainer that works for me, Natalie, um, harps on this a lot when she works with students is whatever it is, maintain your criteria. Because what happens is when the criteria constantly changes, the dogs get confused and the handlers are confused because they're not being consistent. Because then when you become inconsistent as a handler, the dog then becomes inconsistent because there's no predictability to the reinforcer, which was it, was it this that got it? Was it that, that got it? So that ends up having that confusion feed off of each other and causes some of those issues. And it's, but like we, we definitely understand um, that, the having that perfect train and final response is not a requirement for you to know when your dog is telling you odor is right here. 
and it's and it's funny. You're, you'll probably get it. You'll probably like this. Um, I don't know if I had made it out to you yet. I've only teased it a few times, and I'll, I'll bring it up on this podcast because I might have a more official announcement by the time this airs. But you know, Michael Ellis and I decided we we had watched both. Um, you know, we've been and seen the sport world in the professional world, and we saw what we liked, but we also wanted to dive into what the sport people really want which is sometimes a challenge about odor and a challenging environment. So we were, I was actually out at his place. He does Mondial Ring. So Mm -hmm. being out there in Mondial Ring, as you know, is a lot about the environment being used against the dog and the decoy doing things against the dog. And that's how it's graded. So I was sitting there going, you know, that would be really cool to kind of use the environment like it is for real in the professional side. You, you can't predict what the environment's going to do to your odor or what your dog may have to do to tell you it's there. So where the sport world right now is more predictable with some of those things, but not all of them. But I also wanted to fix the problem that I felt, which was the time thing, being graded on how fast you find things. So in short, what we came up with, we were calling Mondio Detection which is going to be the your every environment is always going to be different. So when you go to trial, the trial over at this location may be set up this way. The trial at the next location could be different types of obstacles or things that dogs have to go through to tell you there's odor there. How you are judged by the judge who's there is seeing the dog's commitment to odor, how well the handler reads the dog, and how well the handler and dog search their area, whatever the designed or the, the assigned area is. And that's your scoring, not how fast you find it, not, you know, these other things that are, that you know, tend to be a detriment at times, big picture wise, but it's going to be based on commitment to odor. Can the handler read the dog and can they search their area thoroughly? You know, that's your grading because that's really what real world is about. And it'll include, lot it'll be included sometimes significant blank air but here's the best part too is it's not going to just be the essential oils it's going to be drug dogs bomb dogs hr all of these other odors are going to be in the search space so now we have built-in distractors to other dogs you're not going to always deal with that lack of a better term pheromone reaction of alerts because now it's going to be in different areas the very other cool the part that i wanted handlers to be able to enjoy is to watch each other compete. You can't right now. So what you'll be able to do is if your discipline is not competing, you can watch the other disciplines run the same, run that area. So if the drug dogs are running, the nose work dogs can watch, or handlers can watch. If the bomb dogs are running, the drug dog, you know, it allows a lot more interactive and fun and like camaraderie aspect. And it hits the core points of what we want. And you for sure will be one of the judges. We're not going to make it an association. That's the cool thing is we're not going to make it a sport. It's going to be more like your tough mutter kind of thing. It's just, yep. an event. it's just Mondio detection event. It's going to be held in Anson, Alabama. And here's what we're going to do. And this is the setup for Saturday. This is the setup for Sunday. And we'll have, you know, a basic intermediate and advanced levels just so it's fair to the beginners, to the advanced, but it's not going to be an association where you're earning titles. You're just going to earn, I'm not going to say cash and prizes, but you'll earn some type of prizes or maybe a free registration for the next time. And what we want to try to do is incorporate it with like Friday, be like a seminar day with some people like you, myself, Michael Ellis, or other trainers that are in that area. That's your Friday, Saturday, and Sundays that go compete kind of stuff. Because I wanted to bring back a fun component that people like you and I really enjoyed by being detection dog handlers 
from the real world professional side that I saw was missing from the sports side. Sports side got so picky about you had to be this far from odor. If you were more than an inch or two away, that's not allowed. But we both, you and I both know dog number 10 does not have the same odor picture as dog number 35. Absolutely not. So many conditions have changed, but yet they're all judged on the same. And I get, I get why it's done that way. I just don't think it's fair to judge it that way. And it's, it builds in a lot of the frustration that I think sport handlers go through. And then they get kind of, we both see it, they get kind of down because they didn't title this time or whatever happened. I wanted to bring back a level of fun to this and challenge. You know, it's, it's definitely going to be challenging. The environment, you know, you, you could have an aid, but or a, tra- a training odor. But in front of that training odor is a kiddie pool with water in it. So the dogs either got to stand in the water or do what, you know, it'll be just fun, challenging things. But it's going to be about the things we're bringing up in this conversation, which is it helps you then train better. Because if you know right now, um, it's just like in the professional world, we train for cert standards versus sometimes training for what reality is. And then on the sport side, sometimes they train for the time, the clock versus you know, some of the things that they should train for, uh, it depends. And, and this is, I'm making some generalities here, but we've all been there, whether you're a sport or professional, you've, you've trained for one of those things, depending on what stage you're, you're in. That's wild because it's, it's funny that you, it's, we've talked about paths blending forward or blending. I, David from Set Logics, uh-huh. this is going back, I don't know, eight, eight, nine years ago. Mm-hmm. I went to David and I said, Hey, let's try to develop, a sport that doesn't matter if you're running birch, yep. if you're running dope, or you're running bombs, that everybody can compete together. Mm-hmm. So you can either have, you know, you can be competing side by side as a sport handler, professional yeah. handler. And and let's face it, honestly, you know, no different than, and you come from Florida, so you know, USBCA was really yeah, strong. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I do feel that the days of USBCA did produce a better police dog. It's a lot different when you're on a field with a hundred people watching you and you run your obedience. Mm-hmm. So I do feel that the sport will just in general say nose work has developed so many better detection dog handlers sure. across the board. Yeah. I have a lady in South Carolina. I, I don't even know what breed dog it is. It's some type of hound dog. She can walk into a room and tell me within probably 10 seconds, how many hides are in the room and where they're at just from watching her dog. Yeah. To me, that is phenomenal. Like, oh, yeah, that's truly understanding the communication aspect of what's happening. And she's not the only one. There's a lot of ladies oh. that, and yeah. guys that are just become phenomenal handlers at understanding the communication. And that's all dri- driven by their passion of spending time with their dog. Really, that's what it's all about. We kind of forget that the dog is the whole the whole driving force of this. And having an activity that your dog can do that is it's not obedience. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's not, it should be fun and it should be relaxing and you should be able to enjoy it and sit back and have a good time and laugh and joke about what's happening versus being so serious on it. So I'm, I'm excited to hear your sport. Yeah. Really yeah well, I, you will be, like I said, you're going to be one of the ones I for sure will be having as a guest judge and a speaker, you know, it, it's in its infancy stage at the moment I have, you know, like I said, this this was an idea kicked around a few months ago that's now progressed to the next stage. Um, 
we, we're really coming down to where we're going to host the first one. And I think we're going to do it at Mike's place up in Northern California. It will be like the first one. Um, and then the goal is to maybe do it at different locations. So you, people like you will reach out and say, Hey, you got enough areas in your area to host something like this. Cause I, we both, you and I both know it's going to be the sport world will love it. The professional world will dip their toe in you'll have your very confident handlers are like yep i'm going for it so i want to see how this goes your other ones are gonna be like i'm gonna sit in the sideline and watch i don't know if i want to mix myself with a bunch of civilians yet you know uh and then you know the side that'll be um i guess there's there's the ones that are like i said just very confident like i, I got nothing to lose i don't care i want to see how this goes and then the ones are going to be cautious and watch the sidelines and then join later on when they see it's not as scary or as bad as they might expect and, and the biggest goal I want out of it, too, is that cross-pollination that automatically happens from an event like that, where both sides get around each other and, you know, learn from one another versus going, hey, I'm standing on my side of the fence, you guys stay on your side of the fence, yeah. and that kind of stuff, which, you know, it, it have, luckily enough, in some seminars that I get to go do, there is that good uh, mixture of, of people, and I'm sure same for you. And that's where a lot of the best conversations come from is like both sides kind of hearing from each other. Cause at the end of the day, many of them realize they ha they share the same problems, you know, oh, the struggles yeah. are the same. The, the struggle is the same and it's, and, and you being on both sides. So we're both come from military yeah. law enforcement background. So you've seen the challenges of trying to take the civilian side to the law enforcement side. Yeah. The, that it's in a sense, it's kind of a closed network mm -hmm. and the, the lessons learned from the civilian side bled over to the law enforcement side can really be contributing to help. Yeah. And, and, but it's a lot of times it's met with the resistance. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, so this, I, this will be exciting if you can break the barriers down there. Yeah. And it's something that'll take time. And, you know, maybe the initiative for some will be like they get to win something that they really like, whatever the prize happens to be for, let's say, the top five positions or something. Um, there's just a lot of, you know, creativity we'll get to have with it. And I hope that those things will motivate the people to do it. Now, I wanted to ask two questions before I, before we wrap it up. But I wanted to ask you, what is, I would say, the most common or what is something you like to share frequently with your sport crowd? And then it's the same question. Part two is the same question is what is something you share frequently with your professionals? What are some training tips that you share with the sport world? And what are some of the training tips you share with your professional handlers? Ooh, that's a heavy question there. <laughs> because they're almost the same, really. There definitely is. That's why I was asking. I'm curious to see how, what things you separate sometimes. So I'll start with the professional side first. Okay. The professional side, to me, so I, I'll take the program that we're working on right now. Mm -hmm. the, the, the main, the, the bulk of my handlers that work, that I'm oversee their training and so forth. And actually I have trainers. So I oversee the trainers, trainers type scenario. Mm -hmm. But the bulk of our challenge is complacency. Yep. So... They're searching cargo and it's, you know, a lot of times they work in the exact same warehouse. The same type freight looks the same over and over and over. Oh and yeah. Over. So the biggest challenge that I see is them having the expectation to find something. Yes. 
So it's in a sense, it's like I, I call it the, the 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 factory worker mentality. You're punching with you know? you're standing on the factory line and you're just punching, punching, punching. You're doing the same thing over and over again. Yep. So the 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 one thing that I really try to emphasize to the handlers is I don't care what method your dog was imprinted. Mm-hmm. Classical conditioning bleeds over. Mm-hmm. An uncontrolled biological reaction is going to happen if you want it to or not. Can you interpret that communication that happens even if the dog doesn't want to offer it, but is going to offer it because classical conditioning, Mm -hmm. that uncontrolled biological reaction is going to happen. There is going to be a change of behavior no matter what way you look at it. Can you have enough expectation to see that? Because without the expectation in your mind mm-hmm. or with, uh, programmed in your mind yep. to see it, you will not see it. Mm-hmm. You could look at something a hundred times over again and not see it without having the expectation. So that would be probably the biggest thing that I press with the professional handlers is that I don't care how your dog was imprinted. It yep. could have been done the marker. It could have been done mm-hmm. through retrieve. It could have been done. You could, whatever way you want, yep. classical conditioning bleeds over no matter what way you look at it. Yep. And there's going to be some form of better for lack of word, uncontrolled biological yeah. reaction. Yep. No different than if I took a shot of Patron right now, I would quiver mm-hmm. the, hit the yep. back of my throat, right? <laughs> I yep. can't I cannot make that not happen, right? Yes. No, it's it's gonna happen. So that's probably the biggest thing is battling complacency for the mm-hmm. professional handler. Mm-hmm. They have to have the mindset they are going hunting. Yes. You're hunting for odor. Your dog knows that game, and can you build the expectation to see it yourself? And the dog had the expectation to find something. Mm-hmm. That would be the that would be the number one thing that I press with the professional handlers mm-hmm. is that you have you cannot be complacent. You have to see it, no matter what way. And it's your trade. It's your craft. Have yep. some pride in it. Yes. You don't. Not everybody's meant to be a dog handler. Yeah, I'm just this. Let's face it. It's you know, it's more than cool stickers sure. and having a canine on the side of your car, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have it's, it's a it's a lifestyle. It's not a job. It's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So I would say complacency, have the expectation, and understand that there's going to be there is going to be a change of behavior if your dog encounters odor, if you mm-hmm. like it or not. And yeah, it's up to you to to recognize that. So that what I would say on the professional side. Okay. On the civilian side or sports side, I would probably say the number one thing that has kind of been my theme lately is that the capability that your dog has is so beyond what we can even imagine that you have to, no different than a stinger missile triangulating on its those locked on, your dog has the same ability to triangulate odor mm-hmm. and is doing a giant math problem that you would that we can never ever fathom mm-hmm. how it happens and how to watch the communication and how can you support your dog because you're hunting together as a pack. How mm-hmm. can you support your dog in that process to get their prey in a sense? Yeah. Get and and that the same scenario there. It doesn't matter if your dog was conditioned through a marker or conditioned mm-hmm. through retrieve or through pairing mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. It is still hunting behavior and it is based out of prey, no matter what way you want to look at it. And your dog has the ability 
to do math problems that we can never ever have the we couldn't develop a computer that could do it as well so yeah. can you interpret the communication that's given and how do you support your dog in that role to get their prey so that's that's my biggest pushing thing i it's i call it the doing the math or whatever you want to call yeah. it the dog is pulling information i call it marks you'll yep. see the dog searching and then people some people say the dog is cataloging yeah, yeah there's yeah. all sorts of different terms sure it's, it, the dog is gathering data Mm -hmm. if, let's say the dog walks in and there's three hides in the room. One's birch, one's anis, one clove. Each one of those hides has a numerical value to the dog. There you go. And the dog has to find enough numbers. So, you know, if I wrote two plus blank equals four, you automatically throw two in there, right? Mm -hmm. So the dog is doing the same scenario. He's pulling, each time he pulls information, he's pulling a number, a numerical value for each hide. And how does he do the math to make, to get enough information to solve the problem to do the triangulation and yeah. it's up to the handler to realize what's happening and how to interpret that communication to in return support the dog in a manner that they can solve the problem yep i'm going to bring up something that i know you must get because i know i do so when that dog comes into that space and i'm, I'm going to keep this in the category of, of sport dog but it does happen in both the dog comes into the search space and as you said, you know, processes, catalogs, whatever term we want to use as it goes around and, and uh, collects the data in that space, it hits one of the odors but moves on to continue search in that space. And then it goes to, let's just say it bypassed Anis, but it was searching the space. It goes over to Birch, alerts at Birch. The handler definitely saw something obviously over at Anis, but the dog went to Birch. How do you, what's your way of answering that question that comes up of why does my dog seem to pass by this hide or this odor and seems like it's searching for X, whatever that is? How do you typically address that or answer that question for your clients? Uh, well, we don't, first of all, they have probably processed every hide in the room at the same time. Oh, sure. From, from the doorway. Mm -hmm. So I would say, I wouldn't necessarily say there's, there's contributing factors to this. Mm -hmm. I would say there, it's a broad question with a number of different reasons. Why. So, so a scenario that I've seen a lot lately that happens is people in return because they're worried about competition. So they get the nose work three. They think this is going to be this magical, mm -hmm. hard converging odors with deep inaccessibles. And what they end up doing is they condition their dog to ignore the easy hides and only work the hard hides because that's okay. what they that put the dogs. They yep. put that in the dog's mindset. Yep. I, I would say that just because the dog processed the birch hide first over the anise mm -hmm. doesn't mean that he's not still working the anise. Of course. And you have to afford the dog the opportunity. You have to recognize that that was two separate hides. Mm -hmm. I, I have figured out some telltale traits on when a dog is working converging odor when he's working inaccessible so and also you need to take genetics mm -hmm. a springer does not mm -hmm. work odor the same way a malinois does yep herding breeds always want to come at source at an angle because they're mm -hmm. going to the, they're going to cut the flea into the prey mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. sporting breeds always do it in an arcing manner mm -hmm. it's in their nature to arch to, to, to come out and arch and come back yep. mm -hmm. so if it's a if it's an inaccessible hide, almost always the dog will extend the bracket on one side before going to source. Mm -hmm. If it's a herding breed, it'll do it linear. 
Mm-hmm. If it's a sporting breed, it'll do it in an arch. Mm-hmm. If they're converging, because the dog is doing the math problem and he's pulling values for each one, what's going to happen is the dog is going to anchor off the first hide it's found. Mm-hmm. It's up to us to keep our mouth quiet and not make an interruption of the math problem. Because what they have to do is they have to separate out. There's going to be 20s for both of them. There's 20 mm-hmm. for Annis and there's a 20 for Birch. Mm-hmm. So, he, so he pulled 120. Yep. And he's like, oh, wait a second. Here's a 20 again. Is that the same 20? So he's got he's to go back and anchor off the initial Heidi found. Well, I call it anchor. Basically, they work yeah, yeah. it and leave it, right? Yep. The difference is if they truly are converging and you keep their mouth quiet, the dog will not ask to be paid when he anchors off the hide. Mm-hmm. If it is not converging, the dog will ask to be paid. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that really answered your question in that way, but – I would not panic on it and I would take value that you acknowledge the first hide and then you can use body position to afford the dog to work the second hide, the first mm-hmm. hide over. Yeah. Well, you, you brought up, like you said, there's many different things to this equation. Uh, one of the things I share frequently is you tied into it a little bit is reinforcement history. What's the reinforcement history for? No. Is it that particular odor? Is it like you said, is it position? Is it, there's a number of different things where the reinforcement history and or value plays a role into why this happened, whatever it is. And understanding that will help you how to potentially solve the problem. Like you said, you brought up the important part of genetics. Well, the, genetically, my dog likes to do this. And then another one is that. And then add into, hey, this dog has had I'm just throwing numbers out 300 finds of birch and about yeah. 60 of anise. Um, let's throw into the complexity of, Oh, well my kit, I keep all my odors together, but in <laughs> this, this case, this kit was odors were separate. So the contamination level back to our thing we talked about earlier with the liquid PETN, there's a difference here. So the dog's like, yeah, I kind of know, but this one I definitely feel more comfortable with. So there's like, just in this little example we give, this is why it's always when I do seminars, I know for a lot of attendees, and I'm sure you deal with it too, they want a, if they can, a specific answer to solve the problem. And it's never that easy um, because it takes time to look at some of these things that really delve deeper into the why, because then that'll help us on how to fix it. Or, or, or how it's happening. Um, and it, this is the part I, I truly love. It's like, it's being an investigator in a way like, hey, why am I seeing these things? I need to work through these problems, you know, diagnose a little bit. Okay, try this, try, okay, there we go. That seems to work. Um, but, you know, this is the tough side of the, on the professional when the professional side comes to you with some of the same problems and they want to work on things the downside that they have to face is, okay, we're working on it today in training, maybe next week or only a three day seminar I'm there for. And then they still have to go work calls between, they still have to go do real deployments where they're not going to apply these things. And then there's still confusion that happens because over here in uh, the real world deployments, I do this, but in training I'm working on this and I can't work on this on a deployment. So then the dog's like, because the dog doesn't know, well, in, in certain contexts, the dog doesn't go, this is real, this is not. 
but in certain aspects, they definitely know the difference between a real search and a uh, training search, obviously in other context aspects. But it's just, it's just where that, that's where extra confusion comes in. In the sport world, I would say is they happen to come to one of us uh, three weeks before their next trial. And it may not be enough time to go work on some of those things. And they go to trial trying to work on that. And it hadn't had enough time to really grow fruit. So then they go to trial, something doesn't work out right. And then it's pointed back to the, well, maybe it's because we, we changed, you know, we did this in training for the past three weeks and I really should have stuck to my guns and done this. So all, all of us go through all of this. And I want to share this to a lot of listeners and the viewers is, you know, the biggest thing you brought up earlier was we have to take our time. You really have to put invest our time into working on these things. None of these things happen overnight. Um, the other aspect is, just it's the key term in dog training has always been patience. Patience is a virtue. None of us really have as dog people. Um, but if we do implement some patience and understanding of our dogs, we can end up being more successful. So I, I that's funny that you talk about that because, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, if I'm doing a private or if I'm, you know, traveling to one of my sites and doing doing training with one of the professional handlers, right? Mm -hmm. I, I tell them all the time, if you expect me to show up and have the ultimate magic pill that's going to have success, you're going to be really disappointed. Yeah. Because training is a process. Yeah. It is is nothing that's going to happen instantly overnight. It's funny. My one of my, I actually have cats in the house. Oh. <laughs> she came upstairs. And she is going to town on this box. <laughs> it's having fun, huh? Reminds me of all the aggressive response or scratch response. <laughs> well, I won't take up any more of your time. We've been doing this, you know, we did it before the airing. And now, you know, we had to, uh, gone through all these great questions here. So I'm sure we will do this again. I would actually love it if you would be interested and you can pick whatever topic you want to do, but I would love to, have you do a webinar. We can do it live and then I'll just save it and keep it on the Ford Canada yeah. website. Yeah. Because you have such good information to share. Like I said, I want you to pick any topic because I get good podcasts like this and we get lots of people who have interest in learning something from you more than they can from a podcast. So if that's something you're game for, obviously we'll oh, get together. hundred percent. I'd love to. Okay, perfect. So Again, thank you for your time for coming on here. How do people get a hold of you? How do they find you? Tell us about your Facebook group so those that want to be involved in that. So the easiest way to find me to find me on Facebook, um, I, like I said, I still have a, a normal job. I work probably 60, 70 hours a week for my normal job. So believe it or not, Facebook Messenger is great. Okay. So uh, you can either find Next Generation Canine on Facebook or you can find Tony Gravely, which will be direct to me. Um, and then I have, uh, I'm trying to remember what it's called. If you, if you find me on, it's L-E-Y, G-R-A-V-L-E-Y. So if you find me on Facebook, then there'll be a link to my group, my Facebook group. Uh, there's great information. I'm keeping it to where there's no, there's no conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't care. There's thousands of different training techniques that I don't, yeah. That's irrelevant to me. Yep. The information is trying to spread information. And so find find Next Generation Canine or Tony Gravely. And this is Sanim or Cat here. Like, there is a Next Generation Feline right there. <laughs> yeah. So 
uh, find Tony Gravely on Facebook. You can leave me a private message on there. That's that's the easiest way. Or you can find me through my face on my web is Next Generation K9. Perfect. And I'll, and I'll put those in the show notes and they'll be on the video here as well. So cool. Every, everybody who's listening or, or watching can get this information. It'll be in your show notes or right here on the screen. So everybody, thank you for watching and listening to K9's Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. Mm-hmm. <laughs>